these words from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We 
will go that far. So, it's Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's the first Sunday where we didn't have to wear a coat to come to worship. <laughs> it's the first Sunday where we could wear sandals and our feet aren't cold. Right? It's the, it's the Sunday. It's Easter. It's the Sunday where we say things like this. He is risen. He is risen oh, right on cue. I love it. You know, as I was thinking about Easter and I was thinking about what angle am I going to take? This is my 15th Easter sermon. And so that, you, get, you get that far into the game and you're like, oh man, how do I not repeat myself? How do I not say what I said last year or the year before that? Or, oh my goodness. <laughs> but that's okay. I started thinking about all of you as I was thinking about Easter. And I started to recognize that in this room right here, right now, there is a large diversity of life experience. Like over this past year even, there's a large diversity of life experience. And because of that diversity in experience, it is likely that when we say that phrase, he is risen indeed, it's likely that we're all saying that phrase with like a different punctuation mark at the end of it. Here's what I mean by that. It's, some of us are here and, and we're we're saying that phrase with an exclamation point at the end of it. He is risen indeed, like life is good. We've been caught up in a wave of newness, of freshness, and maybe we're on some new trajectory in life, and life feels good. And so we come here on Easter morning and we're like, yeah, he is risen indeed. God is with me. Woo! And some of us are here, and we say that phrase with a period at the end of it. We say it like this. He, yeah, he's risen indeed. Like we've been doing this forever. Like our whole lives, we've been coming to church. We grew up coming to church. We try to come to church as much as we can, uh, at least two Sundays a month, hopefully more than that. And so we come on Sunday, especially Easter Sunday. We wouldn't miss Easter Sunday, but there's, there's some part of us that like the exclamation point will come later. We're like, look, we're like more looking forward to to the family gathering and lunch, like that's where we're excited. So we come here and, and we're like, yeah, he's risen in, indeed, period. Where are we going for lunch again? Let's get there, right? And some of us are here this morning and we end that phrase with a question mark. We're like, he is risen, he is risen, indeed? Like we're not quite sure what to do with, with the resurrection. I mean, much of the rest of the world thinks that this whole thing is a silly idea. Resurrection? Really? Besides, we have way too many tombs in our lives right now to think much about resurrection. Like, tombs like, like anxiety and, and depression and confusion and cynicism. And so we say that phrase with a, with a question mark behind it. He is risen. Really? Indeed? So as I was thinking about all of those different ways in which we're saying that phrase this morning, he is risen indeed, I thought it would be a good idea this morning on Easter morning to actually lean into that third one. He is risen indeed. Really? I want us to recognize on Easter this morning that for many people, this day is a difficult day. This day is a hard day. We're not quite sure what to do with the resurrection. He is risen, really, indeed. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to stand up here and argue or try to convince you uh, that there is uh, 
Like, the, there is some sort of rational plausibility to the resurrection. I'm not going to stand up here and try to convince you that it actually happened, although that would be an interesting thing for me to do, wouldn't it? But I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I am going to do is just let the story of the resurrection speak for itself, especially the part, especially the part about Thomas and how he experienced the whole reality of the resurrection. Now, typically, churches will wait until, until the next week to talk about Thomas, you know, the dude who doubted. Most people, most churches will wait until next week because we'll like let the Easter buzz wear off and then we go back to the real world and we experience life and disappointment and then we get to the point where, oh, by the way, if you're doubting, but no, I want to do it today on Easter Sunday, because I want us all to recognize that for many of us, the resurrection's a hard thing. He's risen in, indeed? Really? So is it okay if we live into the story that way? So for you exclamation point people, sorry man, I'm bringing you down here. For you period people, I think you're like, eh, whatever. But, but maybe for the question mark people, you're like, finally, let's do this. Let's recognize this on Easter. So that's what we're going to do. So Thomas wasn't with the rest of the disciples when Jesus made one of his first post-resurrection visits. So the other disciples found him and they told him, we have seen the Lord. No doubt by now, Thomas had heard the stories of the resurrection. He'd heard about the empty tomb, about how Jesus had risen from the dead. Stories about him living, breathing, walking, talking, touching people. Right? So the skeptic in Thomas comes out of his hiding place. These stories are too amazing to be true. Like, dead is dead. You don't, you, you, don't, you don't wake up from that. So he turns to his friends and he says this, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, like he's going far with this, put my hand into his side. I just won't believe it. So as a result, Thomas gets the nickname that has lasted for over 2,000 years, Doubting Thomas. How would you like that to be your legacy? <laughs> Doubting Thomas. But really, who can blame him? Right? He questioned the reliability of the evidence. He considered the source and was like, nah, I don't know about that. Who's the source? The source is his closest followers. Right? He considered the source and he's like, I don't know about these people. Right? These are the same disciples that have followed Jesus for like three years and still couldn't figure out really what he was really up to. When things got bad, Peter denied that he actually knew the carpenter from Nazareth. Almost all of them deserted Jesus during his worst moments, his final days, they were gone. They like were hiding, nowhere to be found. The scripture tells us that, that John and two of the women were the only ones who actually were at the foot of the cross when Jesus breathed his last breath. Why would Thomas trust these people? They couldn't figure it out when he was alive. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what was going on. And when things got tough, they just deserted him. These, prove, these people haven't proven themselves to be trustworthy at all. So Thomas doubts. Seems pretty logical to me. Like, we are by nature logical 
beings, creatures. God created each of us with the ability to think, to rationalize, to consider the evidence, to come to logical conclusions. Seems to me that Thomas's doubts are just the sort of normal consequences of what it means to be a human being, right? Now, if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all found ourselves where Thomas found himself. I think there are a bunch of us in this room who are probably finding ourselves there right now. We all have doubts, not just about the resurrection. We have doubts about all kinds of things. Sometimes it feels as though when we try to talk to God, when we try to pray, all of our prayers sort of bounce off the walls and the ceiling, and they come back unanswered, and they like hit us in the chin, and it really hurts. Sometimes we can't figure out how it is we're supposed to relate to a God that we can't see or hear or touch. We look around the world, and we see other Jesus people acting like fools, spreading hate, not loving neighbors, and we think to ourselves, how can this gospel be as powerful as we, we claim it is? And so we become cynical, right? There's this problem of pain and suffering in the world. If pain and suffering in the world, then how can God exist? And if God does exist in a reality where there's pain and suffering, then how can God be good? And how can God be merciful? And how could God be gracious and loving and kind like, we're all, resurrection, really? Have you, are you living in the real world? Right, we're all human beings here, skeptics to the core. We all have the ability to come to logical conclusions, consider the evidence. Doubting is one of the things that we do best. He is risen. Indeed. So if that's where you are, welcome to the club. And I'm glad you're here. So what I want to do in this story is to notice is to notice something about Jesus. Because the scriptures also tell us that, that Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Right? And if that's the case, then let's pay attention to how, to how Jesus <laughs> enters into this story. Let's pay attention to, I want us to notice how Jesus engages Thomas, the doubter. Or let's first look at how he doesn't engage Thomas. Like, he doesn't judge him. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't mock him. He doesn't marginalize him. He doesn't say to Thomas, hey, figure it out, dude. I'm out of here. And when you figure it out and you have a little bit more faith and you can get your life together, then I'll come back and we'll, then, then I'll hang out with you. No, he doesn't do that. Right? He walks through a locked door to come after Thomas, the one who doubts. He doesn't push him away. He comes through a locked door to find Thomas. He comes after the one with little faith because I think that's just what God does. Jesus comes after the doubter, comes after the one with little faith because that's just what God does. Let's think about it. Think about if it fits. Let's think, about, let's think about one story in the Old Testament. And there are many, many stories that we could think about. But let's think about this. How, how did God first come to Moses? What did that look like? So God comes to Moses in this bush that was burning and yet not being consumed. Like, imagine that for a moment. This bush is burning and yet not being consumed. Right? And he hears the voice of God. Right? He takes off his sandals. I mean, how much, how much more evidence does a dude need to figure out that God is on your side? Right? 
Imagine that. And then God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. Right? And then he gets in sort of this back and forth argument with God about whether or not he's the right guy to do it. And finally he goes to God and he says, God, I can't do this. I can't talk well. I can't speak right. I, this isn't right for me. You've called the wrong dude. No, forget about this. And, and, and God, what does God do? God doesn't say, oh, you're right. You're totally right. I messed things up, Moses. Forget you saw the bush. Forget the whole take off your sandals thing. Just put your sandals back on. Go back to your normal life and forget that anything happened here. I'm going to go find somebody else to do it. No, that, God doesn't say that. What does God say? He says, I will be with you. So good. Sticks with him. Comes after the one who doesn't believe. Comes after the one with little faith. Because that's just kind of what God does. And then there's this other story. It's in, in the, the story that Matthew tells about Jesus' life. The, the, the disciples find themselves in a boat. And it sort of gets stormy outside. Um, a big windstorm comes up and there's waves and it's crazy. And uh, Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Uh, and the disciples are figuring out what to do, and they're afraid. And so they go wake up Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, don't you care? We're all going to die here. Um, what, is, what does Jesus do? Right? He doesn't say, come on, guys. Where's your faith? Like, figure it out first, and then I'll do something about this. No, he doesn't do that. He says to them, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? gently reminds them that they have room to grow in their faith. And then he stands up and he rebukes the wind and he says to the waves, quiet, be still, and it becomes still. Right? God comes to those with little faith. God sticks by the side of those with little faith, with those who question, with those who doubt. He comes after those with little faith because that's just what God does. So if that's where you are, just be patient. I have a feeling that God's coming after you. Somehow, some way, God's coming after you. So we're rational creatures with the ability to analyze evidence the next logical question then becomes, why does God do that? Why, does, why did God continue to come after Moses? Why did Jesus come after the disciples? Why did Jesus come after doubting Thomas? Maybe. Maybe God comes after those with little faith, those who doubt. Because our God is a resurrection God. Because our God loves to bring about new life. <laughs> the divine loves to bring transformation. God loves to make things new. Because the resurrection wasn't a one-time event. Like, Easter isn't over. Like, little resurrections happen all the time. Little Easters take place all around us. Where there is death, God can breathe life. Where there is fear, God can bring the gentle kiss of peace where there is doubt. God can bring faith, even faith that is robust. 
God comes after those with little faith, those who doubt, because our God is a resurrection God. He loves to bring new life. He loves to transform things. He loves to make things new. God understands that doubt is just another resurrection waiting to happen. Doubt's just another resurrection waiting to happen. I read recently about Albert Einstein. It seems that he was a rebellious kid that questioned authority. Like in school, he was a troublemaker uh, who doubted what his teachers were teaching him. <laughs> Can you imagine a little Albert Einstein sitting in class going, yeah, I don't know about that, as his teachers were teaching him? I just think that's hilarious. But because he doubted, it created inside of him a kind of unquenchable curiosity as to how the world actually worked. And because that doubt turned into curiosity, it transformed him into the greatest physicist the world has ever seen. A little Easter, a, a little resurrected, a little resurrection. And that got me thinking about some other great people in history. Galileo doubted that planet Earth was the center of the universe. And because he doubted, it created in him a kind of unquenchable curiosity as to how the universe actually worked. That doubt turned into curiosity, transformed him into the, one of the greatest discoverers ever. A little resurrection, a little Easter. The world was skeptical that human beings had the ability to create a machine that could fly. The Wright brothers doubted the world's skepticism. And because they doubted, it created in them a kind of unquenchable curiosity as to how such a flying machine could actually be created. That doubt turned into curiosity, transformed them into the fathers of modern transportation and changed the world forever. A little resurrection, a little Easter, little resurrections, little Easter's. They're all around us. And doubt is just another resurrection waiting to happen. So if you have doubt, great. Grab onto it. Acknowledge it. Live into it. Lean into it. Let it create inside of you the kind of unquenchable curiosity to connect with the divine. And that connection right there might just transform your life forever. Jesus comes after Thomas. Thomas believes. It's a resurrection time, man. You know what happens next in the life of Thomas? Thomas then goes to India and he plants the church in India, in a foreign country. Another Easter, another resurrection. Okay, so we talked about doubting Thomas. What about the others? What about the other? We sort of just skipped over that part of the story, right? They no doubt had heard the rumors. Mary Magdalene told them that Jesus was alive and how he walked and talked and touched and he was alive. And yet here they were. Here they were, back in the safe harbor of the upper room. There they were all tucked away, back in the familiar back in the well-known with the door shut tightly behind them, there they were, sealed in their own self-made tomb with doors bolted shut. Why do they lock the doors? 
And that, I find that just fascinating. Why are they locking the doors? Well, John tells us it's because they were, they were afraid for fear of the Jews. Well, nothing in the Gospels, nothing in the stories about Jesus tell us that the Jewish authorities were going to come after them next. Fear of the Jews? I don't know about that. Like, what kind of church is this? Like, this is the first church. This is the early church. What kind of church is this? All tucked away in a self-made tomb behind locked doors. This was a church that had absolutely nothing going for it, sitting there cowering behind closed doors. This church had nothing going for it except for one thing. After the resurrection of Jesus, no tomb is sealed forever and no door is locked indefinitely. So the risen one enters the room, slips through the cracks. I don't know how he did it. He came through the door. He came after them first. So Will Willimon says this, church, I love it. Church is a gift of a God who refuses to leave us be. He comes to us. His presence makes us church. To the church which had nothing, Christ gives us everything, spirit, mission, forgiveness. To the church which had nothing, Christ gives everything, spirit, mission, forgiveness. So here's the deal. We're not church. We're not the church because of all the stuff that we do in this place behind doors in, inside these walls. That isn't what makes us church. We're not church because of, because of things like worship and Renew Kids and Pods and Renew Kids Club and Ignite and all the other stuff that we do in here. That doesn't make us church. We're church because Jesus slipped through the crack in the door and he's given us spirit, mission, and forgiveness. And he tells us to give those things to the world. See, we believe that Jesus is outside these walls, at loose, out there in the world. The resurrection tells us that he's out there making all things new. And his invitation to us is to follow him out there and work with him at making all things new. Can you believe that? Like, we get to be a part of that. In some small way, you and I, we together as a community, we get to be a part of the making of all things new. Can we actually do that? No doubt about it. It's resurrection time. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for the story. Thank you for what it says to us about us, that when we find ourselves in this place, in this room, on this day, on Easter morning, going, really? That that's all right. That's just fine. That you're actually okay with it. And that you actually meet us here in this place. You put your arms around us and you say, it's all right. I'm here. I'm with you. And that, that kind of attitude, that kind of doubt, that kind of skepticism, that kind of cynicism doesn't push you away. In fact, maybe it's the kind of thing that actually draws you near. And so we pray, oh God, that you would meet us in our doubts, that you would meet us in our question marks, that you would meet us when we just have a period at the end of that sentence. He is risen indeed. And we pray, oh God, that you would wake us up to the presence of the divine.
And we ask, oh God, that your presence would then transform us and make us new. Once again, not for our sake, but so that we can be at work with you out there in the world, bringing love and grace and healing and forgiveness into the communities in which we live. Be with us, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.